Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. This is Tequina Boston. And this is Michonne Boston. 1981 marked the 40th anniversary of the premiere of the miniseries Brideshead Revisited in the UK. The U.S. premiere was in January 1982 on the PBS series Great Performances. Based on a novel by Evelyn Waugh and adapted for television by John Mortimer, this very British period drama was a surprise hit with American audiences, including myself and some of my high school and college friends. On face value, none of us resembled or had anything in common with Charles Ryder, Sebastian Flight, or the charming yet self-destructive Flight family. But something about the story and the characters connected and stuck with us. Earlier this year, I opened a room on the Clubhouse social audio app and invited friends for a chat about why Brideshead Revisited still resonates 40 years later. This bonus episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters features the recording from that conversation on January 21, 2022. Joining me on the clubhouse stage to share halcyon memories were my fellow Brideshead head, Ellington School of the Arts and Oberlin College classmate, vocalist Dawn E. Robinson. Shazia Salim, owner of the Pop London Sustainable Fashion Boutique, joined us from London. And Janet Cam, who was our guest on this podcast about Julia, HBO's dramatic series about Julia Child and the making of the French Chef cooking series, brought her expertise as a wine food and restaurant consultant, sharing wine recommendations reflective of the historical time of the Brideshead series. Here are a couple of updates that occurred since that January discussion. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced he was resigning as leader of the Conservative Party to make way for a new Prime Minister, and a remake of Brideshead Revisited, scheduled for 2022, has been shelved for the time being. But for now, enjoy this bonus episode called Brideshead Re-Revisited. the theme from the 1981 miniseries Bride's Head Revisited, composed by Joffrey Bergen. And this is our Bride's Head Revisited, or should we call it Re-Revisited, 
40th anniversary fan room. And I'm Ashawn Boston, the co-host of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm here with my sister, Jaquina Boston, with Dawn E. Robinson, Janet Cam, and Shazia Salim. It's on, we're all on stage today on the Platform Clubhouse. So everybody, if we could mute our mics until we're ready to speak, that would be great. Uh, so why are we here? Well, it is for, actually 41 years since Brides had revisited, premiered on in the UK in October 1981, and it had its US premiere in January of 1982. And there was a lot of skepticism about the success of this miniseries that was 13 parts based on a book by Evelyn Wall. And oddly enough, American audiences loved it. 60% of television viewers tuned in for at least three hours. So I guess um, we're not really a panel. We are going to popcorn this, but I wanted to just say for those of us who want to admit we were there, <laughs> Watching PBS great performances on Monday night, weekly for 11 weeks. When you hear the music, what do you think? What comes to mind? What memories come to mind? I think I'll ask Dawn because where were you at that? Where were you at that moment? If you want to reveal, Dawn, you can unmute. Uh, the the music takes me back to um, the the scenes mostly with, with Charles and Sebastian, like under the tree, the first time he visits. And, um, and it, and it also takes me back to the, the, the scenes that were in Venice. Um, but I, I, I get choked up every time I hear it. <laughs> and, um, and it, it makes me want to like watch it again. Yeah, I used to watch it July every year. For some reason, the month of July just brought it back. Maybe it was the scene with the strawberries. Um, and, and that brings me to um, favorite scenes because I want to get Janet Cam in on this. I think I, I've made you a convert. I mean, <laughs> have, have I converted you, Janet, to Brideshead? <laughs> well, I had seen a few segments of it, but I was in the height of working the restaurant business. I had co-founded Le Pavillon Restaurant, and it was day and night. So I think I might have seen a scene or two in the past few years. Um, I always knew about it, and I just adore those kind of films and television programs. And so, yeah, the music is beautiful. It just takes you back to a gentler time and uh, civilization. <laughs> Yeah, the eight, well, the 80s wasn't too gentle <laughs> in no. real time. But, um, and then I want to make a note that everyone on this panel is not Anglo, <laughs> which is kind of, that's what, that's the odd thing about Brideshead. But speaking of scenes and memories, one of the most famous scenes was the wine tasting scene when Sebastian and Charles Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight, who met at Oxford as students and became enthralled with each other for temporarily, are left alone in Brideshead Castle and they decide to go into the wine cellars and pick up some bottles and teach themselves wine tasting. So Janet, can you tell us about that process? Are they doing it right? 
Um, they were doing it right for the period. Um, it, it's different at this point in time. So let me uh, reflect on uh, what that scene was. So they chose a wine from every bin. The butler walks away. They take it up to this fabulous building outside. I think you would call that a folly. And from day into evening, they open these bottles and they're reading how to taste. There's a candle lit. Normally, this uh, in current times, that's for decanting. But at this point in time, they're heating their glass. And um, the wine is cellared. And cellar temperature, which is supposed to be still cellar temperature now, which people call room temp, is 55 degrees. So at this point in time, they're warming. That was the tradition at that time. So I think this is to bring the wine to open. If you notice the size of the glasses, they tend to be what we would think of as almost an aperitif size, if not something for sherry or Madeira, which is uh, you know drunk in smaller quantities than claret, which is Bordeaux, uh, or Burgundy. Um, but uh, I think uh, the acting was very good in that awkwardness of swirling the wine with the elbow swirling along with it. Um, it was just um, a lovely, lovely uh, segment. And um, I've had the uh, occasion to taste uh, Port and Madeira from the 1850s. Um, and those tend to be benchmarks. And wine at this time is also uh, made differently than it is now. And certainly now with climate changes evolved, but um, we now use the larger glasses to open up the wines and they used heat at the time to open the wine. Aromas. Mm, yes. I, I sent you the names of the wines that were mentioned in the script. What is the difference between a claret and a, what was it, a burgundy? Yes. Um, claret or Bordeaux is always a blend. And they tend to be Cabernet Sauvignon, um, Merlot, uh, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and maybe one or two other uh you know, varietals. Uh, Burgundy, fine Burgundy, is from one area, one, a few rows, a few hectares. Um, and uh, it's a singular uh, terroir-driven uh, wine. And that's, and in fact, it's much more difficult to understand Burgundy than it is Bordeaux. And Bordeaux has a specific style of blending every year. Um, Burgundy really reflects the terroir and the master, master's hand, the farmer and the winemaker. And you do wine tastings now virtually, or you, you, you we were talking about the both. wine tastings. You, yeah. yeah. During lockdown, a friend had asked me, he says, oh gosh, we're locked down. Can you do a wine tasting? I said, absolutely. So I did this as a favor to the people in his building. And afterwards they said, what are we doing next week? So I ended up doing 46 for them. The 47th was done for the junior league. Someone had found out and said, oh, could you do it for us? And um, it was always paired with wine and food. So for the 46th, it was delivered to people, wine and food. So they uh, saw the pairings. And I was also focused on... Um, Food other than just uh, cheese, which was very interesting, um, but Chinese food in particular because of what was going on under COVID and the loss of Chinese restaurants and indeed lives as well, which has continued to this day. 
So um, that 47th one was really um, the best of Trader Joe's and why? Because I have insider information and also selected foods that people could pick up. That was a much larger group. So, and I do them uh, also for clients, whether it's a single person or a group. So Janet, I want you to update your bio. That is your assignment because on your clubhouse profile or avatar, you see a little celebration moment because this is your first time on clubhouse yes people need to find you to access your expertise in these things and maybe sign up for wine tastings virtual wine tastings or for you to organize them that would be great um and for the moment is janet at janetcam.com and that's j-n-e-t-c-a-m.com for immediate access (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to come back to Dawn because, um, and still you loop you into this, Janet, because this is another wine question. Dawn, you have a favorite line in Bride's Head, which takes place under the tree when Charles and Sebastian hop in um, their friend's car um, because he wasn't very eager to get up at 8 a.m. to the morning. And they have a basket. Sebastian brings a basket of strawberries and a bottle of wine. I can't remember the wine, but he said it goes great with um, strawberries. So, but when they get to that spot under the tree, stop the car, eat the strawberries, the wine, of course, it's wonderful. Charles, the narration says it's wonderful. Sebastian says something and you say, this is your favorite quote. Yes, it's my favorite quote from the whole thing. Sebastian is lying on his back, looking up and smoking a cigarette. And he says, this is the perfect place to bury something. Um, I should I should like to bury something precious. Every place that I've been happy. And then when I'm old and ugly and miserable, I can come back and dig it up and remember. And I, 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 I just, I immediately uh, got captivated by Sebastian from that line. Um, and then he, he, he became my favorite character for the, the rest of the miniseries. So Janet, strawberries and wine, for some reason that sounds like a sixties song. <laughs> well, the tradition among the, the English is strawberries and champagne and, um, at Wimbledon, they serve um, strawberries with uh, Lanson Black Label, which is really a superb accessible champagne. Um, and the Black Label is entry level. And all champagnes of uh, the Grand Mark houses, which are designated from a, a certain point in time, um, have entry level champagnes, which are around uh, 40 to $60. And it is the style of the house, the Tete Cuvée, which is the highest level of um, winemaking for them. Often a Blanc de Blanc means it's a 100% Chardonnay, which is like Dom Perignon, uh, La Grande Dame. Um, and of course, the, the favorite of Winston Churchill was Paul Roger, which is still family owned. And um, the Anglais, uh, which is uh, the English taste in wine, tends to be more yeasty, uh, like brioche. And uh, the levels of that is, um, I would start out with uh, uh, Veuve Clicquot, 
then it would be uh, Paul Roger increasing in that yeastiness. Uh, you would go into Bollinger and Krug. And um, that's very different from uh, Tattenshay, which is more feminine in style. So I imagine what they might have been drinking with um, the uh, strawberries could have been even Cristal, because Cristal was bottled for the Russian aristocracy in clear bottles, and it was sweeter. The taste at that time for champagne was on the sweet side. So if you wanted to recreate this and you were, let's say, um, you know, on a budget, I would select probably a Lambrusco, like Trader Joe's Lambrusco, Dolce, which is slightly sweet, perfectly balanced, and is something I use um, during Chinese New Year's for dessert. Um, splashed on uh, blood oranges and also sipped uh, with it. So that's what I think they might be doing with their strawberries. Well, now in the room, Shazia, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yes. I'm sorry if you were speaking to me earlier and I didn't respond. Um, I'm still at work and uh, yeah, okay. I'm close. Yeah. So, so sorry if I missed you earlier. No problem. You're out. You're going to have to be our UK representative here. So I'm assuming you may not have seen Brides Head Revisited, but what is anything we're talking about intriguing you about this or from, from your perspective where you are now in London? It's, it's really fascinating about Brideshead Revisited. But, you know, because I didn't know about it, um, it's not, it's, you know, the, the BBC is obsessed with repeating programs and they've repeated series and things, you know, like forever. But, uh, but Brideshead Revisited is a series that is very seldom repeated on British TV and it's not in the sort of general cultural references. So I, I only came to discover Brideshead Revisited when I, uh, you know, I was, um, I had friends in India who were talking about it in, you know, in, in Delhi. And um, so then when I went back to when I came back to the UK, then I, um, I, I, I tried to find it. And I think that I watched some um, episodes on on YouTube as well. So it is really difficult to um, to find. But but Jeremy Irons is such an iconic British actor and he's really admired. And, you know, so, I mean, a lot of the cast are quite well known. But but yeah, um, but I, I mean, I didn't see it when it first came out, and uh, yeah, it has been, it has been quite difficult to get hold of. <laughs> so, yeah, was it? Uh, I mean, I did enjoy it. Um, I didn't watch it all to the end because I think it was just difficult with the YouTube, um, just kind of keeping that up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, a bit, a bit, probably not on the level of of you. But I do love historical drama, and I love that kind of stuff. And the, the house, the estate, is just stunning, and. Uh, you know that that whole that whole sort of like Oxbridge crowd is uh, they've got their own rules and their own culture. It's always fascinating to to watch that. But I never went to Oxford. <laughs> I was never that clever. Yeah, let's about that crowd because I remember when I went to England, I tried to get up to well, actually, I was trying to get to Castle Howard, which I realized was a long way from London because it's in York, even though it's the stand-in for. Brideshead Castle, which in the book is in Wilshire, I think. 
but not within driving distance from Oxford. Um, do, do they still teach Evelyn Waugh in school? Do people even talk about Evelyn Waugh in terms <laughs> of my favorite book or something similar? I mean, um, I mean, he's an he's a classic um, author, and uh, uh, I mean, like I wasn't taught about him. Uh, I mean, I his his books were not sort of like set texts or anything. When I I went to school in Edinburgh, though, like I, I didn't go to school in England. So I went to school in Scotland, and uh, and it was like a private girls' school, but but they kind of yeah. I mean, we didn't we didn't touch on his text. I mean, they're always they're always you know sort of uh, around the periphery and texts that we should read, um, but we're not we're not sort of encouraged down that road. But but I think maybe it was uh, the generation just slightly not not my parents' generation, but the one uh, just slightly older than than me. Um, that you know that, that their generation would have been you know it would have been set text up until then and um just the the curriculums keep changing and things but you know of course Evelyn Moore is a very highly admired um writer and uh you know it is he's part of the establishment isn't it and he's writing about the establishment so um and the you know our current prime minister and a lot of the people currently um, in his cabinet and his his ministers went to Oxford and you know there's like uh, if you're on the opposition we have like a real problem with the the sort of culture that they were a part of in Oxford and that whole aristocratic entitlement crowd that they are but that's very much in today's British politics so um yeah what is it? The Oxford set against the Cambridge set, or something? That—that's always the annual rowing competitions and things like that. But it's, uh, um, you know, I mean, in in terms of, you know, even even with a lot, a lot, many British politicians go to Oxford or Cambridge. You know, so it's not. Uh, uh, you know whether they're wealthy or not, whether they had like um, an upper class background or not. Uh, you know our political class, as such, if you want to call it that. A lot of them do go to Oxford or Cambridge. So it's like the Harvard, Yale, Stanford that we have in the U.S., where we have a lot of our political leaders who go to those Ivy League schools. Or, um, well, Stanford, I don't know if it's included in the Ivy League, but it sounds like there's kind of a similar. Um, system in terms of if you are seeking a political career, there are certain schools that you have in your sights. Is that is that accurate? Yes, yes, very much. Yes, Shazia, as someone who um, is also involved with fashion, I'm interested in your take on the fashion in Brideshead. I mean, I look. That's one of my favorite periods, um, particularly for women when women start wearing slacks, pants, trousers. But when I look at it, and I just watched it again, I feel like it could be a Ralph Lauren fashion spread. I mean, the clothes are, 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 and it makes me wonder if that's the appeal for Americans, because I know with regard to a lot of the public television here, the British series are popular because Americans do seem to be somewhat uh, Anglophile. 
But I was interested in your take on the fashion in the um, costuming in the, the series. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's been a good, it's been a good six, seven years since I watched it. But yeah, I do remember really admiring the fashion, you know, whether it's the mom or the sister and, you know, the, the fashion in general is just beautiful. And I love, I for the menswear as well, I love when... And I really miss that men don't really dress up anymore. They never dress smart, um, you know, smartly and they never care about their appearance. And I, uh, you know, I, I love the effort that used to go into menswear and women, women's fashion. But, but yeah, very much, you know, I think it very much does um, have a, you know, in, in today's context, like, uh, you know, that Ralph Lauren, that sort of heritage, that heritage look, that, uh, the tweeds and the silks and everything. And um, I mean, people use fofa nowadays, you know, like, but, but, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's very elegant. It has, it has that sort of Chanel type, um, um, Chanel type undertones as well. Chanel, Coco Chanel spent a lot of time in the UK um, and in Scotland. And, um, you know, so I think, um, and it kind of crosses over into wartime as well, and um, so I think that has a lot of influence on fashion um, for, for 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 women as well. But the that there's so much to take in, isn't there, with the interiors and the fashion? Uh, it's it's visually it's just stunning. Now that the rain is slowly bitter and we are lost inside our lover's nest. We don't need the world, we just need us. What if we'd stay like this forever? These wine-colored days, summer is gone. Deep cold velvet nights when we are one. I'll come together now, soon the sun will melt this love. We could part and never look back. Life will shortly have us. to turn that corner to some of the questions that we were discussing before this. So what is the story about? What is Brighthead about? Is it a story about love? Is it a story about religion? Because it features a family of Anglo-Catholics, friendship, identity. Tequina, why don't you kick that one off? You, you're, you've just watched it after many years. Yeah. Um, you know, I... It has, an, like most big novels, and actually it was seeing the series that I actually at some point in my life even read the novel. Um, but it has a lot of themes. It's, you know, it's about friendship. Um, it's about love. Um, it's about the role of religion, particularly in the, the lives of the flight family and the kind of um, conflict it creates with them um, around their faith, internal as well as external conflict. But, you know, when I think about how the um, series affects me, I feel in some ways it's almost like a coming of age type uh, 
series? I mean, you're even though you start with Charles at 39, he feels middle aged, and I I remember he's he he has gray streaks in his hair, and I know there are folks at 39 have gray streaks, but it's almost like they aged him. He looked more 49 than 39 to me. But you know, they started at the war, and he happens to be returning to Brideshead because that's where his unit is stationed. And um, I see it as him reflecting on his life, moving from youth, young adulthood, where you everything seems possible. There are great expectations you have for your life. You're discovering yourself. You're discovering other people. You're discovering love. You're um, kind of wrestling with some of the questions of, of purpose and meaning. And you see Charles in particular, he's the one, I think, who's on this journey. And he, he makes a lot of references to his age, I notice, you know, the ages and stages of life. Um, and I think you see moving from young adulthood to mature adulthood, where there are losses, where the kind of foibles and, um, you know, things that you see in your friends is just personality traits uh, can also, and like in the case of Sebastian, they're like, they can become fatal flaws, uh, Sebastian's alcoholism. So um, certainly religion is a big piece of it because in the family, the chapel is a, a, a very important uh place, space. You see them, they do pray before dinner. Um, there's Charles is trying to understand what is the draw of their faith on them. Why do they believe what they believe? Because um, he's the rationalist. But I think ultimately, even he realizes that there are some big questions that um, can't be answered. And um, I think in observing this family and the role that faith has played in their lives, even with Sebastian eventually coming back around to his faith, to Catholicism, um, there is a kind of recognition that religion does have a role even in modern times. But what I find interesting about that is World War II, a lot of people began to question the existence of God. Uh, a lot of people began to move away from organized religion because looking at, uh, and I'm, you know, looking at the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, which in some ways, when I think about who are the perpetrators in that German Holocaust, um, we're asking, well, how can you say there's some benevolent God who's in control and we've just been through this devastating war and lost so many lives and seen so much horror, literally. Um, so yeah, I think it's a novel and a series with big themes where religion is core, uh, but it really is also looking at how uh, the character Charles Ryder moves from his young adulthood into his mature manhood and how he comes to a point of allowing religion in his life. That, that's my, my um, take on it.
And then when you mention World War II, there's the the fact that the Catholic Church took the position not to get involved in what was going on with the Holocaust, that they were going to remain neutral. And I, I wonder, well, that would be the follow-up to Brideshead, you know, what would be the flight's position on that, or Anglo-Catholics as London and, and the UK is being bombed by Germany. And um, I remember in the miniseries, the younger sister Cordelia says Sebastian never left the church. So Dawn, what do you say? Is it a story about love, religion, friendship, identity? I was thinking along the lines of it being a, a coming of age story. I, I was remembering, I think when, when I first saw the series, um, it was after all of those that that first part of of uh charles being in the army and 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 that whole that whole thing i i'm i missed the first time i saw it it was it was in later viewings that i uh saw that part so for me um the story really starts with him you know meeting sebastian and um at oxford and and you know, being the freshman and uh, that whole thing. So it, it's more of a coming of age story for me. And then as the other family members come into it, um, you know, seeing that whole family dynamic and 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 you know, and being from a family that has a, a bunch of different personalities. <laughs> um, I, I related to that. Um, so I, I do, I do think religion, it definitely kept coming around. It kept, it kept coming back. It was a recurring theme throughout the whole thing. Um, I guess I just didn't really focus on it so much um, until the, the, the end, until, until uh, Lord Marchmain returns to the house and then it then it really became like a a thing it really became um a centerpiece of the story um but i think it's about yeah it's 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 i also um felt like sebastian because because i missed you know in the first thing first viewing of it Missed that whole section with Charles. I I felt like Sebastian was the central character. I knew there was so like when when Sebastian sort of disappears. I remember feeling like okay, but what? Wait, what happened? To, what happened to Sebastian? So it took a few viewings of it um, for me to to sort of get away from that and 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 then you know get into the what the what the other characters what Charles and um, his life was becoming um, with these, and then him being re re um, acquainted with um, the sister whose name Julia with Julia. Um, but it's yeah, it's coming of age for me, and 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 just sort of seeing, uh, um, just seeing you know how his how his life, how Charles's life. Um, 
what is the word I'm looking for? It advances uh, through 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 the times of you know things in in history that are going on with the war and pre-war and all that. One of the things that's interesting to me, you know, because you have the Church of England and there's that whole history of how the Church of England split off from the um, Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church, and that being Catholic, even though they're part of the aristocracy, being Catholic does mean, I remember, um, Julia cannot expect to marry the uh, sons who would inherit the title and the estate, um, that there are certain uh, social barriers to being Catholic, despite their class privilege. So I'm wondering, Shazia, um, is that still a thing in the culture or is it like in, I think in the U.S., people don't really care about what your particular um, religious affiliation is, um, whereas it, it seemed to be such a strong part of the identity of the uh, Lord Marchmain, Lady Marchmain, the family, whether they were rebelling against it or totally uh, controlled in, in their thinking and their behavior. I was just wondering, you know, does religion, religious identity have any particular meaning to, in England today, in the UK today? Yeah, um, again, it's a really fascinating way to, to see it. And I, wa- I wonder if the, I wonder if the, you know, I didn't know, Michonne, that um, the BBC are going to, they're, they're remaking it. So it's going to be fascinating to see how it's received. Because, um, Sakrina, you know, in, um, in the UK today, and for, you know, for decades now, um, you know, if, it, I mean, Brit- Britain doesn't do God. I mean, it's not, it's not as um it doesn't have a, a it's not as secular say like france and you know where they're really like anti-mixing religion and politics and things you know and uh, quite secular but but here um uh, you know like that i mean church the church of england has got very very low um attendance um it's not it's not a particular you know people don't go to church on sundays um it's only in i think catholic or greek or you know jewish well i mean like for sunday church it would be like greek orthodox and uh, uh, and catholics that would attend church and uh you know certainly uh i mean our our, our current and recent elected politicians do not mention and do not go on about their uh, religion and uh, I mean Theresa May who was the 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 prime minister before our current one I mean she's the the daughter of um, a minister in the church and you know and that was just that was seen as like a, a, a I guess like a plus for her her piety and things but of course she's a politician so it's not it's a bit slippery but Tony Blair when Tony Blair left office, he converted to Catholicism, but it was like a real vote killer if he had stayed in politics and then um, um, declared uh, while he was in power. And, uh, you know, so, so it's, it's interesting. And it's really interesting to, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how, the, uh, how the overly religious tones of the series are, are received by like a, like a modern British public. And, and I wonder, I wonder if the, 
um, I wonder if it's because of the, the sort of, I, you know, I, I, I agree it is about the friendships and, you know, the coming of age and things, but I wonder if the, 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 the religious references are what fell out of fashion in the UK in that, you know, since it was, you know, in, in my childhood and um, young adulthood, it was not screened on TV. It was not is it was not repeatedly reissued and and i wonder if that's because um you know um decision makers just thought that that audiences didn't really have the stomach for it and uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that um how how it's received you know going forward so it's uh yeah that that's that's how i would see it at the moment yeah i think bright said why it resonated with so many people and even persons like myself, who is again, not Anglo uh, and has no connection to the world that these characters inhabited on an intimate level is because of the emotional journey it takes that it, it, that the protagonist Charles Ryder is going on. And as we said, everyone has said here coming of age and in all its facets, religion, friendship, love, and all those emotions that come with it. But let's talk about some of the characters, because if they're going to do this again, people probably want to know who to, who to watch out for, what characters really shine or don't shine in our memory from the 1981 series um, that was released in 1982 in the United States. So... We'll start with Tequina. We talked about our favorite character um, from Brides Have Revisited. Why don't you share our favorite character since we're the Boston sisters and we do our historical drama podcast? Well, I think we both liked Kara, who was Lord Marchmain's mistress. Um, she had a kind of gravitas, but also impeccable style. Um, and she had insight, and she was the one who basically pointed out to Charles that Sebastian was in trouble, that he was headed in um, a dangerous direction, that he was headed towards alcoholism. And um, she was very pragmatic um, and very elegant, so she was one of the characters we admired a lot. And then the other who was like almost her opposite, Antoine, a classmate from Oxford, who was very, well, he was openly gay, um, queer. He was very flamboyant in his dress, in his behavior, um, in his tastes. And he also just named things. I mean, um, he, he was very candid. He too could see that Sebastian had issues and he actually was the one who warned Charles about the entire family. And I think you and I both um, appreciated what Antoine had to say about charm when he tells Charles, I warned you of charm. It kills love, it kills art. I greatly fear it has killed you. And do you want to say a little bit about our conversation about how Antoine's take on charm kind of uh, shifted our thought about 
how charm is is defined or, or thought about? Yeah, that line all has always stuck with me because you know we we grew up with fairy tales about Prince Charming, which I think Into the Woods kind of touched on what Anton was saying. Um, and we were, you know, you, you were all, it was considered a positive thing to have charm, to be charming. And then I hear this and it puts a different spin on it. And so you have to look up charm. What is charm really? And I, I haven't looked it up in the dictionary recently, but it just seems like a facade for something that is not so charming or not so attractive underneath. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would agree. And, and particularly with regard to that family, I mean, on the surface, they were impeccably dressed, you know, sitting around the in the salon, reading from books in the evening and, you know, their elegant meals. So they didn't really seem to be enjoying their food at all. Um, but it was, it was a veneer, um, even the way that, um, so, Sebastian's mother was manipulating Charles to try to um, use Charles to keep track of Sylvester, of Sebastian's uh, behavior and uh, to kind of uh, tone down uh, Sebastian's um, antics. It just felt like they uh, there there wasn't a lot of inner life with with them. Um, ex Cordelia, I think, more than than the others. Bridie struck me as rigid and uh, unfeeling. Um, and uh, I think as I as I look at it, um, Sebastian probably was almost like the character who carried the emotions for the rest of the family. Um, because the rest of them, until, you know, Julia has her, her guilt trip, um, they just kind of like carry on. Oh, well, that's Sebastian. Oh, well, you know, Bridie, this, that, and, and, and it, it's not a family I want to be a part of. I'll just say that. And, yeah. uh, their version of charm really, uh, was all about appearance and how they, kept this veneer of calm, even though inside, one, sometimes Bridie would say things where you knew, oh, he's very judgmental, actually, um, or he's very unfeeling. Um, and you would get that sense from the mother as well, and even the father, um, when, when Kara talks about how much Sebastian hates the mother and the father hates the mother, and it's not that he's with the mistress because he loves the mistress, it's because he hates the mother and he knows that it makes his his wife uh, angry that he has this mistress. So Dawn, you have a favorite. Who's your? You already mentioned that Sebastian is your favorite character. Do you want to elaborate or say who's your who's the most annoying to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I while you were talking, I looked up charm. The noun in Oxford Dictionary is the power or quality of giving delight or arousing admiration and as a verb control or achieve by as if by by or as if by magic 
Mm, sounds and a they definitely did that. Yes, the mother, the mother was definitely the verb version <laughs> of charm. Um, uh, played very, very well by. Um, see, her name went right out of my head. Uh, but yes, Sebastian is my favorite. Claire Bloom character. Claire Bloom, yes. Um, so much so that, like, the first time she comes on, I, I find myself going. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Sebastian is my favorite character. And then um, I think Cordelia is my second favorite character because I, I sort of, um, I sort of, I, I related a lot to Cordelia because she was much younger than the rest. Um but but life seemed to get to her, and so in the end, she seemed so much older than than the others. It was it was interesting. And and Phoebe Nichols was much older than the fourteen year old. Yeah, and yes. we we see her again on Downton Abbey. You know, it's it's great to see some of these actors and where they go from these series when we're maybe in the U.S. introduced to them for the first time. Um, I thought it was interesting that Jeremy Irons was filming the French Lieutenant's Woman with Meryl Streep at the same time that he was filming Brides Have Revisited. So I can imagine what that schedule must have been like. You know, one was the nighttime schedule and one was the daytime schedule. Well, also flipping back and forth in terms of the psychology of the characters and yeah, age yeah. and wow. Wow, that's phenomenal. Says something about his talent and ability. Well, Dawn, let's share a bride's head memory. We actually met one of the actors, Charles Keating, who plays, plays Rex Marcham. Yes. Okay. And um, he came with the Royal Shakespeare Company to the Oberlin College campus. Um, Oberlin, I think bride's head always has an appeal to liberal arts colleges in that type and the Ivy Leagues, even though it's the Oxford set. As, as mentioned before. But um, anything you want to remember, he was quite the Rex, even Charles Keating, at, you know, off camera. Yes, I think so. Um, I did not get to spend as much time like with the, because uh, he, he did like a masterclass um, with um, our friend Yolanda was able to attend that. Um, so we, we, we heard about that. But he did. Uh, he did. He did a series of readings. He did some readings in the um, that I did get to see, which was which was awesome, because um, I hadn't actually seen anything like that live. Um, you know where they stand. You know, holding the book, and you know, and um, but I I just thought he was awesome. I did. Um, I didn't really I lost track of him for a long time and then he would sort of pop up in certain things I would see on PBS after that um but uh I didn't really get into uh his soap opera um <laughs> his soap opera uh line of work um but we yeah we we got to see him backstage at at uh at Oberlin and he just had this like sort of gravitas this sort of air of 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 what is it this this distinction he definitely commanded the room like rex march definitely 
yeah, as as Rex did exactly, exactly. Um, but he uh, he he definitely made an impression. Definitely a good impression. So this is the Brideshead re-revisited 40th anniversary room. I'm just resetting the room. And um, I'm thinking of some of these. I, I was reading an article about Brideshead Revisited written in 1996 by David Stewart for Current Magazine or Current Newspaper, which covers public media or public television. And um, I just want to share a few factoids that I think is that I think is interesting. Diana Quick, who played Julia, is an Oxford graduate, and she was president of the Dramatic Society. John Mortimer, who wrote the screenplay and adapted the novel, is also an Oxford graduate, and he also wrote Rumple Mystery Books, which would, be, which would become a popular PBS series on mystery um, called Rumple of the Bailey. And Evelyn Waugh, who wrote the novel, was also an Oxford student and, like Charles Ryder, dropped out six months before graduation. So the Oxford set is definitely represented here um, in full force. I think I remembered um, it being very popular. And even in school, we had a big TV room and you had to get a key. So we would have to run and get the key to the big TV room so we could see it on a bigger screen um, to watch Brideshead in those times. Also that um, I think I mentioned before that Evelyn Waugh was invited to Hollywood the year after his book was released and MGM discussed adapting Brideshead Revisited into a movie. They wanted to emphasize love story and Evelyn Waugh turned that down because that's not the way he saw it and he wanted more creative control so that didn't happen no surprise Hollywood wanted to emphasize the love story yes yes that's all the time you have in two hours I mean that's that's what you can do in two hours whereas this series was 13 hours so it'll be interesting to see if they will give the same amount of time to it in any future miniseries remake. I did see the film version and it felt incomplete compared. I mean, the thing I like about dramatic series is it is almost like reading the book. You can really stretch out the characters, bring the nuances of the story in. Um, but the other thing that I think that's amazing about this series is it took them, what, was it two, two and a half years to they make start it? Yeah, they started in 1979 and completed in 1981. So at the time, it was the longest production in UK history. And then they went to, they not only filmed in the UK, but in Venice. Um, and I can't remember if I went to the Cafe Florine in Venice because of Brighted or because of something else. But, and there's also a scene in Mexico and they go to Morocco. So that was a really significant investment of time, resources, and travel. And the scenes in Oxford were filmed in Oxford. And remember, Castle Howard is way up in the north in York. So, um, yes, it, it was an extensive amount of travel. Um, in this article, they mentioned there were strikes 
going on. So it was quite a heavy lift, but well worth it, I think. So um, I said I would wrap this up in one hour. So this has been a really good conversation. And um, thank you, everybody on this stage for Clubhouse, the Clubhouse fan room for the 40th anniversary of Brideshead Revisited as we revisit memories and also revisit the miniseries itself, which I wish would be made more available right now. It's on BritBox, which can be accessed through Amazon Prime and directly from BritBox. So I'm going to end this with replaying the theme music so have a great day. Lovely Thanks. to see you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information about this podcast and other episodes. Sign up for our e-newsletter to receive news and announcements about upcoming podcasts and activities. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters podcast for new episodes and more bonus content. Like and share this podcast on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.